song before It's from an old familiar score I know it well, that melody Just about everyone loves music, and we all have a dizzying assortment of genres to choose from. Our guest today has attempted to do for music what the authors of 1,000 Places to See Before You Die did for travel. Tom Moon grew up in the world of music. He studied jazz saxophone at the University of Miami and has been employed as a professional musician, working with such acts as Tony Bennett, The Fifth Dimension, and Maynard Ferguson Orchestra. He's been writing about music for 25 years, too, for publications like Rolling Stone, Spin, GQ, Esquire, Vibe, and Blender. Tom Moon also contributes music reviews for National Public Radio's All Things Considered, while writing a column at NPR.org. His new book is 1,000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die, A Listener's Life List. Now, we don't have any idea how he could have possibly even attempted the task of recommending 1,000 recordings, but we're keen to find out. And we can't very well cover 1,000 picks in an hour. We'd have to do 1.8 seconds per choice, but we're going to do what we can. Tom Moon, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thanks for having me. Now, you really covered some ground for this book. I noticed in the B section you got uh, box Brandenburg Concertos joined by Black Flag. So, so I have to ask, to get 1,000 that you winnowed down to, how many did you have to listen to? The list at its maximum was about 3,500 titles, and out of that I probably listened to parts of about 3,000, maybe more. I mean, it's hard to know because often what happens, it's like doing a web search where, you know, you put on a record and you go, oh, that reminds me, I've got to check out something else. And two, five minutes later, an hour later, you're 10 steps away from where you started. A list like yours always generates heat over what's going to make the cut, what doesn't make the cut. Your publicist sent out a cover letter noting that uh, some people may cry foul, for example, over Billy Joel's exclusion and Britney's, Britney Spears' inclusion on your list. And it is a personal choice, Tom, but what criteria did you rely upon for these choices? Boy, you know, I t- because I was trying to cover so much music, and really the mission of the book as it was described to me uh, when we initially talked about it was they wanted something that was as broad as possible that would help someone who was a new listener to music someone who was just coming along you know maybe a 15 year old kid who sort of had his his guitar hero uh world well in in hand but didn't know much beyond that i couldn't have a criteria that that was like okay i've got to have uh everything has to be innovative everything has to be uh moving the goalpost kind of record everything has to be a million seller, everything has to be a Grammy winner. None of those things applied. All I wanted, and I looked for this in every style of music that I, that I visited, was stuff that felt like great music, that was kind of a peak experience that I could say that to anyone who had a little bit of curiosity in music and an open mind that, okay, you know, we, we maybe agree that the Beatles were great, and if we agree on that, and I think most, most people that listen to music find a soft spot somewhere for the Beatles, then it's not that far of a leap to go with me when I say that, that the bad brains are great. All right. I, I want to note, lest I forget, that uh, the book is organized with some indexes in the back that are especially useful. You go by genre for your choices. You also have a section where people, if they want to set a mood, say for a cocktail hour, what selections they may want to go with. It's very useful. Well, and we did that mainly because we didn't want the book to be all separated out by genres so that someone who likes blues, uh, the normal way for a music book like this is all the blues records would be in one place. 
and we'd say, you know, blues A to Z, jazz A to Z, whatever. I did not want to do that, mainly because I felt it was important to sort of encourage the reader to explore just by the way we organize things. So we put it all in alphabetical order by the artist's last name. So, you know, on one page we have the country singer Ernest Tubb, and right across from him is Tupac Shakur. Right, right. Um, I'm not a musical expert by any means, but I was. Uh, there were some things I just never heard of. So I have to ask you, were there some picks that you really thought were very unusual or, 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 or certainly unknown to most people? Well, there was a lot of music in here that was unknown to me. Uh, uh, I covered music for 20 years, and one of the things I really tried to do uh, in my interviews with artists, you know, I interviewed Beck, for example, on every record uh, from the very beginning, and I can remember talking to him and saying, what records do I need to hear? What are you, what are you really loving right now? And so a lot of the choices are from the, the, in the book are from those interviews where people would say, in Beck's case, he and I had a long conversation about Caetano Veloso, the great Brazilian singer-songwriter. And turns out he's a huge fan of Caetano, and he recommended some great records, one of which is in the book. So I tried to do it all different kind of ways. I took, took input from a lot of different people, and I also, they gave me a small budget to go buy records. So when I would read something that I didn't know about, I'd just grab it. If I, on some of the online sites, uh, people do customer reviews, and if a customer would say, oh, this record changed my life, I was like, well, i got to hear that. Well, let's, let's take the plunge and examine some of these choices of the thousand we have to choose from. Uh, uh, you, you mentioned uh, recordings of a singer who, whom you describe as the first major recording artist. That would be the legendary Enrico Caruso singing 21 favorite arias. Can you tell us a little bit about these pioneering recordings and, uh, and the artist? Well, he was, of course, the great, uh, the, probably the first star singer, uh, and he started recording in the 20s, and his recordings were often just single pieces from operas. Uh, in those days, obviously, things had to be fit on a 78 RPM disc, and uh, that could only hold, I think, four minutes or four and a half minutes or something. So yeah. often with Caruso, what you get are short bursts of great singing, and this compilation, which you sort of have to have a compilation where he's concerned, this compilation gets all of his heavy, great world masterworks. You've got a lot of humor in the book. I laughed at your noting that whenever a rock show sort of hits a slow patch, someone in the crowd yells out, Free Bird, which I think we've all heard. Uh, and you went with Leonard Skinner's tune for your book. as a kind of a benchmark for rocking out. Yeah, sure. And, you know, it's funny because the studio version, which is the one that was the single, really, uh, is great. And then you hear them do it on the one more From the Road record, and it's great on that, too. <laughs> and actually, I remember seeing them and thinking that the whole show was sort of one level, sort of nondescript, not the best show I ever saw, and Freebird was amazing. <laughs> Well, uh, you're not afraid to challenge popular wisdom, uh, I note, that uh, rock historians might consider Rumors to be that great album of Fleetwood Mac. You chose an earlier one, the, the Fleetwood Mac album. Right, and that's the one right in front of Rumors, and I've, I have a couple reasons for that. First of all, I, I really am interested in that moment in a band like Fleetwood Mac where there's a personnel change and all of a sudden things change. I mean, the, the same happened to the Eagles with Joe Walsh joining right before Hotel, Hotel California. And 
with Fleetwood Mac, Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks show up. They've just released this album of theirs that is still, un- incredibly, this album still is not available on CD, but anyone who likes Fleetwood Mac should really tra- try to track down the record called Buckingham Nicks, which has three or four of the songs that end up on the Fleetwood Mac album done as by the duo, uh, and it's just great music. Buckingham Nicks is one of the great lost records. I felt I couldn't have that as an entry in the book, however, because it's not available. Uh, on CD for some reason. I don't understand it. Oh, that's something I missed. Actually, everything in your book can be found on CD. Just about everything is either on CD or, or downloadable. There are some things that you, you might have to go to the secondary market, like uh, used record stores and uh, imports and things like that. But most, I'd say about 80% of it is available. Fair enough. You, uh, you devote quite a bit of space, which I which I like, to music from Broadway recordings, and I want to chat up a few of those, uh, starting with what, what I thought was maybe the greatest musical I ever saw, West Side Story. You chose the original Broadway cast. What makes it great? Well, first of all, the the the, the energy that these performers have for this score is unbelievable. There, I think I think that often what happens is as the shows settle in, and then they start to do things like recording the cast album, the original cast albums. Sometimes it's too, it, it, it wait, they wait too long, and it, the show's been going forever and ever, and you never get that energy that they had when the, when the show was fresh. And with this, it feels that way. Now, I don't know exactly where, when in the process of the staging this was recorded, but it feels to me like everybody's still right on their toes, and they have to be because of Sondheim and uh, you know, and Bernstein. They, they, the, the writing is so sharp and so specific that every singer is really being tasked a lot. There's a challenge just about on every piece. After seeing that stage production, I, I couldn't watch the movie. I thought it was just unwatchable. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you had a great quote uh, uh, from John Lennon for one of your selections. John Lennon once said, don't give me any sophisticated crap. Give me Chuck Berry. And you too went with Chuck Berry, choosing the anthology. Yeah. And unfortunately, the Chuck Berry, the individual records that Chuck Berry's legacy is built on are not all great, and a lot of them are not available anymore. Um, and yet I feel like anybody who wants to play guitar, who has any aspirations to making rock and roll music, needs to spend some time with Chuck Berry. This anthology at least gives you all the hits, but also a bunch of the B-sides, a bunch of the things that were closer to sort of Chicago blues uh, that he was doing early in his career. And he was much more of a fierce guitarist than, if you haven't heard him in a while, <laughs> yeah, uh, much, much more raw and intense than uh, you, you get just from hearing, like, you know, Roll Over Beethoven say. Well, speaking of Beatles, you talked about a soft spot some people may have. I think you're probably guilty as charged. You picked no less than six albums for your book. Uh, let's talk about the Fab Four. What, what, what do you do? <laughs> I, you know, this was the, the hardest thing was there was a, a time at the beginning of the process where people were saying, and this editor I was working with was saying, just one pick per artist. And immediately I thought of the Beatles, and uh-huh. I'm like, well, how can we do that? I mean, is it fair to limit something that's had such a long and, and left such a rich legacy for everyone else that makes pop music, how can we possibly limit ourselves to what would have had to be like just Revolver or just Sgt. Pepper? And I couldn't do it. So I ended up 
trying to find the records that were, A, some of the more influential records and records that people I knew as artists talked about a lot. I spent an hour on the phone with Jeff Tweedy while I was researching the book, and we talked a lot about the kinks, and he talked a lot about the White Album and made me listen to the White Album in a different way. Jeff Tweedy from Wilco, uh, you know, just really one of the astute listeners of, of music, and after talking to him, I was like, you know what, he's right. There's something great about these very disparate miniatures that the White Album, that are on the White Album, that is there there that stands apart from everything else the band did. You know, it's the Tension album. It's it's not as coherent as the other records, but boy, when you listen to it as a piece, it's pretty great. Well, you certainly you certainly did some I think interesting uh, compare and contrast, uh, and, and your descriptions are very entertaining. I wanted to quote from you from one of them. Uh, you wrote in your write-up for for Queens and Night at the Opera. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? With these questions, Freddie Mercury leaves behind the run-of-the-mill jive talk of rock to embark on an epic quest known as a Bohemian Rhapsody. It's six delicious minutes of opera buffa outlandishness, a series of musical theater scenes that borrows everything but the powdered wigs from opera. <laughs> Funny. Thank you. Well, don't you think? I mean, it, yeah, I do. What was so great about them is that they they had the musical chops to take on something that was programmatically and conceptually far beyond where you know where any other rock band was and they made it credible first and then they made it really funny and some of the other tracks on that record are just screaming good uh, up and down the production is amazing uh that's another record where i think a lot of people ha who haven't heard it in a while i hope will go wow this was a real contribution <laughs> Funny you say that. I just heard it recently and just thought, my goodness, that these guys were good. The book is A Thousand Recordings to Hear Before You Die, A Listener's Life List. We're speaking with its author, musician, and NPR music reviewer, Tom Moon. One of the choices you made, which I, which I loved, was uh, The Complete Works for Piano and Orchestra with Rhapsody in Blue by Gershwin. And I, I note the first, time, the first time I heard Rhapsody Blue, I was, I was in awe, and, and I just still am. It's, it's a chilling piece of music. It's obviously been used a lot in film. Uh, Woody Allen uh, uses it in Manhattan, and uh, it, it, it's, it just evokes everything about sort of cosmopolitan America that you would want. And it, it, the melodic writing of Gershwin in, in The Rhapsody is just unbelievable. And there, it's another case where people who are raised on rock music or whatever... I think would hear this, and even if they don't end up loving it and it becoming their favorite thing, they will f have been enriched somehow by just hearing it. And that's what I think is most uh, amazing about music. I mean, I keep I kept having this experience while I was working on the book where I'd be like, mm, I don't know, you know, this is this may be a little too far afield for a book that we're trying to get a you know sort of 15 year old newbie music listener to like. And then I would put it on, and I'd be like wow, th there's something really special about this stuff, and hopefully someone with an open mind could hear it and get it. Yeah, I remember once playing it and looking at somebody going, Cause rock does rock have anything to compare to this? <laughs> it's it's pretty pretty hard act to follow. Yeah, it sure is. You, you had a write-up for Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon that was quite interesting. I, I had no idea it was in the chart 741 consecutive weeks. That's, that's 14 straight years. That's incredible longevity. It's unbelievable, right? And, you know, as I said at the beginning when we were talking about 
uh, criteria, I tried not to be like, okay, this record was around forever, it sold gazillions, I ha- it has to be here. And when I listened to Pink Floyd, as the catalog, as I went through, I, I found the record that I loved back then that still ended up being my favorite was the one after Dark Side of the Moon called Wish You Were Here. I think there's some guitar playing on Wish You Were Here that might be a peak of rock guitar. And, and I, I wrestled with that back and forth, and finally I came to the conclusion that Dark Side of the Moon is one of those concept records that takes you on a journey the whole way through, and it also did have, it, you know, it, it had such an impact in the culture, and almost everyone who cared about pop music for a long time listened to that record and heard it. And I have to ask Tom, have you listened to it while watching The Wizard of Oz? <laughs> yes, I did that, actually. <laughs> and does... The first time I did it, I did, it did not uh, uh, line up right. And so there's many places on the Internet, if anyone wants to do this, <laughs> make sure that you, under, you, you get the right starting point, because there are different starting points depend, depending on who you trust. And... I found one that worked, and I it was I think it was the third lion roar of the 20th century fox lion or whatever. <laughs> Who knows? Right, right. Uh, you talked about uh, folk music's first uh, a pop uh, pop moment in the form of Peter Paul and Mary, their six, 1962 debut album. Can you talk about that? Yeah, not one of my favorites. Yeah, again, this book was not trying to be what I think everybody should hear, just as in terms of. Uh, my own personal take on music. And when I heard that record for this project, I was like, you know, this is uh, one of those... There are some records in the book that had to be there because they did move the goalpost, or they did sort of start a revolution. And in a way, this Peter, Paul, and Mary record is there for that reason. Uh, but And it's perfectly beautiful. I mean, the yeah. singing is great, and... The, the songs are very smart and stirring, and obviously they do Dylan, and nothing at all in the world wrong with that. It's just not the kind of thing that I would put on relaxing at home. Fair enough. Uh, I wanted to contrast that with something you chose from just about the same era, the Shangri-Las leader of the pack. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to be a well-rounded listener, you have to have one of those 60s teen tragedy right singles and to me that's the one well uh, I, I, I gotta tell you Tom I don't know whether you did this as part of your research but somewhere somewhere it must exist a copy of an Ed Sullivan show where they came out and did the song and they, they cut to Robert Goulet sitting on a motorcycle on stage revving it at the appropriate parts of the song I'm still laughing at that one four decades later that's great I did not know that <laughs> I hope it, it must be out funny. there somewhere I'm sure it's on YouTube. Uh, let's let's talk about a guy that uh, that is pretty well known here in Northern California, Leo Kotke. You cited his album Six and Twelve String Guitar. That's uh, there's another one where it's just gorgeous music. It's incredibly well recorded. If uh, an, uh, another introduction into a world kind of record where because of the way he painstakingly captured this instrument and it was done very quickly. It's so warm and so rich, you, it feels like the guitar is in your ear whispering at you. And the playing is just great, and it's one of those records that, again, someone who aspires to play the guitar probably needs that in his back pocket. 
and and not the guitar, but the sitar. A master, Ravi Shankar, made your list for three ragas. What what makes it special? Well, it's interesting. There are obviously now probably thirty Ravi Shankar records of him in his prime playing different ragas with some of the great accompanists of Indian music. This one is his very first Western release. It's before he does anything with the Beatles, before he's at all in the public sphere as far as, like, the the pop world is concerned. I think it's 57 or maybe 59. And it's very vibrant. He's young, and you, you really it just... It's, fiery and alive. And in the liner notes, uh, there's a quote from the liner notes in the book where he says he hears the, the vigor of youth in it. And he, he wrote the liner notes for an edition when it was reissued on CD. And when I heard that, when I, uh, first I heard it and then I realized what record it was. And then I went to some of the later records and I said, you know what, he's right. And there's something about hearing an artist like that who's had such a huge influence at the very beginning of their career. Now, he had obviously recorded a lot in India, but had not yet been in the West, and there's, there's something special about those kind of records. Well, any list of a thousand recordings that we should hear before we die has to have some Mozart in it, and you, you had several choices, I noted, and described uh, his last seven symphonies as, quote, high points in the history of music, unquote, and that's, that's hard to disagree. Again, the, the, the mind stuff that he does, the way the structure of these pieces, and they're not long, elaborate symphonies like we think of happening in the Romantic era. They're much tighter, more disciplined, and every, it's like one melody flowing into another melody, and you, you sense that his idea for taking a line and elaborating on it and, and pulling it through many different key centers sometimes and, and different moods is... He was really a genius at that, and the melodies themselves are great, but what he does with them and how he makes them, extends them and elaborates on them is tremendous. And another classic that, uh, that really had to have made a book like yours, Tom Shirley, the early works of Louis Armstrong, and you noted that his recordings from 1925 to 1928 really established the vocabulary of what becomes jazz. Yeah, sure did, and uh, in fact, some people argue that it never got better than, than when he did it right then. Uh, I don't know if I believe that because I'm a big fan of Miles Davis and John Coltrane and many other jazz artists. But what it is, is uh, before Louis, everybody's playing essentially the melody and sort of taking little elaborations around it. After Louis, he's showing people that it's possible to create whole new melodies on the spot and have those melodies be exciting and more compelling often than the original themes and when you hear a bunch of Louis, these these early hot five and hot seven recordings they're called in a row you just you you can't help but smile because the guy is just a, a gregarious player he's he's one of those musicians that he he sh- he shares his soul with with you every time he plays and you can just tell he's happy and he's uh, He's got something to share. There's an exuberance in it that's just amazing. And doubly amazing that we hear it now, you know, however many years later. I noticed in that Ken Burns special, they were trying to to talk about jazz and all of its forms. And and it was funny that he mentioned at one point, nobody could agree on anything except, boy, that Louis Armstrong was great, wasn't he? (laughs) Louis is the root 
of so much of it, and even people that, that do disagree wildly on what jazz is will embrace him. Well, you made mention of one album. You say these were necessarily uh, favorites of yours. There was one favorite album of mine from the 1970s. I just haven't heard much of uh, of late, and yet you, you said it was the only authorized live album of Jimi Hendrix, Band of Gypsies. Uh, oh. Great album, and, and apparently you thought so too. You know, Hendrix is another one of those artists where he was influential several different ways in his career at several different points, and, you know, if I was going to really represent Hendrix fully, I probably also should have Electric Ladyland in here, which is an equally amazing record, slightly earlier. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that if I, if I was to do the book today, I mean, you know how your tastes change all the time. If I was doing it today, I'd probably really think hard about including Electric Ladyland, too. But when I went through Hendrix, I, I sort of felt like, boy, this rhythm section is so so intense, and ne there never was another rhythm section like that. And uh, that's, you know, you you, you got to start it. Are you experienced? You have to sort of go through his periods, but you can't overlook the Band of Gypsies band because they were great. And you know, even when the tempo's sliding around a little bit and you know things are things are loose, it's so intense. It certainly is. Tom, uh, final, final question for you. Uh, I, I know that most of us kind of change our tastes as we get exposed to different types of music, and you're setting out to do that by, by sort of introducing people to a lot of different forms of music. Were there some selections that you chose that you like a lot, but at maybe some earlier point in your life you couldn't stand? Sure. <laughs> you know, I, I grew up studying jazz and sort of had a very elitist idea about country music. I was one of those people, I love country music now, but I just couldn't get it in my head when I was a kid. You know, I, I was all about the jazz saxophone players and, you know, Steely Dan and music like that. And one, and this happened well before the book, but at one time, um, Willie Nelson had that Stardust record where he does standards. And that record, which is in the book, uh, really turned me around. And when I heard Willie Nelson interpreting, you know, Stardust and just expanding what you what you would think could be done with a standard it was stunning and it 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 opened up a world to me and uh i'm i'm probably guilty of not having i tried to represent a lot of the huge luminaries of country music but i probably didn't get all of them but boy was i ready to learn and listen to that stuff now i mean i think you, you know there's almost nothing better than what Johnny Cash does at any point in his career. And likewise, Willie and, you know, Merle Haggard, Waylon Jennings. I, and that stuff, it was not that I even knew I knew who Johnny Cash was as a kid, but uh, in many other cases, I just didn't know that music. And to sort of come to it later, uh, I, I really, I'm almost ashamed that I didn't get it when I was a kid because it's it's so rich and it ha there it has so much to offer us and it's it's quintessential american music like gospel and blues and jazz where the these are the the stories and narratives of everyday life in america and the more you can get those whether it's the carter family or G johnny cash or porter wagner or dolly parton th there's something really magic about that stuff well the book is 
1,000 recordings to hear before you die. And I'm sorry to say that we're out of time, Tom, but, uh, but uh, I-, I wish you and the book well, and we thank you for speaking with us. Well, thanks for having me. This was fun. I want to note, too, in passing, that uh, just about every genre that you talk about does turn up here on KDVS as the largest freeform station west of the Mississippi, and I, I hope that many of our DJs and listeners are going to take a gander at, at your choices for future play. That's great. If not that, then for each entry does have those things at the bottom that recommends other entries or other records to hear. And my, my hope is that if people don't like my choice for Pink Floyd, they go explore the, the other recommendations of the catalog or some similar artists that are, that are noted there. And, uh, you know, there are no wrong answers where music is concerned. It's all good. We do have a website. It's called 1000recordings.com, so it's the numeral 1000recordings.com, and we're also inviting people to post excerpts from their own list. One thing that this has done for me, it really taught me how important it is to sort of be prioritizing what you listen to so you don't just take in, you know, whatever the latest greatest is, and you actually think, you know, we may not have all that much more time on on this planet, and let's uh let's use it well let's really be uh concerned about what we listen to and feed our heads with uh good stuff because there's lots of it out there may not be on the itunes welcome page but you can find it well tom moon thanks again it's been a lot of fun and i and i best of luck with the book and website which i didn't know about i'm glad we mentioned it yeah well i'm glad we did too and thanks again for having me all right take care bye-bye 